0: We're here with Charlie Maas, the CMO of Rum Charter. Well, actually, the former CMO. Um, I hear there's been some really exciting news and congratulations
1: in order. Yeah, we sold the Rum Chata brands to Gallo, uh, the Gallo Wine Company, about a month ago. Uh, we're very excited about the possibility uh, for the brand to really thrive and in in, in in Gallo's care, uh, you know, they're the biggest wine company in the world and they have a, their spirits division has been around 10, 15 years. They have some great brands um, and just they're, they're sort of the best in class in terms of execution at retail in our industry. And we are thrilled that they will be carrying on the Ramchada name for the, but let's say for the next Hundred years, or so. hundred
0: or several hundred years, yeah, right? However a long people continue brand. to drink, probably <laughs> into the future. Well, that's yeah. amazing. I'm so glad to be catching you at this time, and uh, you know, having this conversation.
1: Yeah, that, that's what we've been doing for the last. It's been a while that that has been a negotiation, um, and so it's sort of the. I guess the calm after the storm now, you're sort of looking around like, what am I going to do next?
0: <laughs> well, huge congratulations. I know that's been an incredible journey, not just for you, but also for your family.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My dad invented Ramchata about 12 years ago. Um, I was working at Sachi and Sachi at the time. I came over to Ramchata, it's called it seven and a half, eight years ago. Uh, and we've been yeah, we've been we've been selling, 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 selling ever since, and so it's been uh, it's been a tremendous journey, a lot of fun working with my dad, um, but we're also very excited uh, to hand the brand off to an amazing partner like Gallo, and and to get some sleep,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, and to not have everything rest on you, right? It's a it's a big transition, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, our team at Room was amazing, and and people really, we punched above our size as a small company. Um, you know, we were the, we were the second largest independently owned spirits brand in the United States. The largest is Tito's, which is the biggest brand in the whole country. Um, and so, and then we were about call a 60th in terms of total sales volume, uh, through Nielsen. So, you know, brands two to 59 were all owned by some giant conglomerate, um, and for our team to be able to compete with with those massive multinational corporations is something we're really proud of. Uh, and everybody really—you uh, didn't have one job; everybody had about four or five different jobs—and and really pulled together. And that was um, that was very different than than my previous career at agencies where it's very siloed, and you have your role and you stick to your role. It was a lot of fun to to sort of see more of the business.
0: When you, um, and I know you know a lot of this I'm sure is thinking about what's next for you and, and what's important, but as you think about your career so far, what do you view as the most influential decision that you've made to date?
1: That's a great question. I mean, deciding to come join Ramchata was big for me because I was a broadcast producer at, at the ad agencies. And so I knew production very well. And then you work closely with the creatives. And so I knew that aspect of the advertising business in terms of a general marketing understanding. um, I didn't know anything about pricing. I'd never thought about product sizes or packaging or route to market or any of that stuff. And so that was all learned on the fly. Um, And then, so that was one big jump to say, okay, I have a, a specialty of sorts in advertising. Let's see what the rest of the marketing world is like. Um, and then after that, about three or four years ago, we did a strategic restage of the brand. Um, and we really made a conscious choice to say, let's, let's change the way we do things to make sure everything is, is there's, there's a data-based reason for why we're doing it. A lot of people talk about data-based decision-making at this point. Um, but I think that we, we try to take it a step farther and say, okay, let's own our own data. Meaning Instead of prior, we'd been using a marketing research firm that would, you know, every six months, they'd put out a bunch of questions, they'd give us an answer. And the answer would come in a 70-page PDF and we'd walk through it. And oftentimes you'd read it and then put it away until the next six months. And we really wanted to shift our our whole, the whole way of thinking to uh, if we have a question that comes up at any sort of meeting, is there a way that we can look back at the data in real time cut it ourselves, see if we can find the answer. If we can't find the answer, then let's go back to the source and ask the question to, you know, a, a large enough sample of people that we actually have an answer because I, that was a huge shift for us as a company because we had a product that was really popular and had a lot of pull through at retail um, in the first few years. And then at a certain point, we, we hit a sales figure. We had, we had a huge sales numbers, especially for an independently owned brand. But we, we reached a point where we said, okay, the poll has stopped, so what do we have to do to to, to get five, 10, 20 growth in the next couple of years? And that that really sh- our our approach to the business changed when it wasn't trying to keep up with demand and all of a sudden we had to create demand.
0: And can you talk a little more about, I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating when you're explaining this when we last chatted about just how the shots space kind of works. Can you explain a little about that? Because I think, I I feel like we all will go, oh yeah, that makes sense. But I don't know that many of our listeners will be thinking about
1: it that way. Yeah. Um, Shots and alcohol are a blessing until they're not because you get a lot of volume and a lot of trial really quickly, but it's also cyclical. And so, you know, when I was in college, people drank Jager bombs and they had shots of Jägermeister. um, And that brand I, I don't know the exact number. I think they did two, three million cases in about 2010. Let's call that a case is 12 bottles in a case, right? So they're doing 30 million bottles of Jaeger just in the United States. Um, when fireball got popular and people stopped taking Jaeger shots and they started drinking fireball, Jaeger lost a million cases in about two years time. Wow. Um, and that's, that's all just, if you have a group of six people who go up and say, okay, we're going to do a round of shots. That's a third of a bottle gone. And if that happens a couple of times in a night, you really, you know, that, that, that's a great way to move volume. And so we were popular in a shot, um, early on, you know, we went from what was the call, shot? The, the shot was, it was, it was Ramchata mixed with fireball and people called it a cinnamon toast crunch. And so you had, you know, Ramchata's cream based. So you had this sort of creamy dairy portion to it. Then both products had cinnamon in them. So you had like, it was a really approachable shot for a lot of people because you had the fireball, the sort of edgy whiskey side to it, but it also had a, a really easy flavor profile. So, so big groups of people could do it. Um, and we had a couple of years in a row where we grew, you know, our volume quadrupled a year to a year to two, three years in a row. Um, and we, we were just worried about making enough product. And then when that, when that shot sort of it got replaced by something else in 2015, 2016, we had to look at the the sales numbers and say, okay, how do we replace all that volume? And that's, that's really when we looked at, we took a much more in depth look at who are our consumers? Um, how are they consuming the product? How do they consume competitors? How, where else can we, you know, what other category entry points can we push to say, this is another way to use the product. This is another group of people who would like the product if they had heard about it. Um, and that was all really based in uh, an extensive amount of research we did um, on the consumer.
0: Oh, that's, that's a, it's just a really fascinating. Uh, thing to think about, and part of it is, I'm sure, about staying on top of trends. But how you create a trend of having millions of Americans suddenly want to start mm-hmm. drinking this particular shot that may involve your drink, but may involve other drinks. And I mean, do 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 companies in your space collaborate, or is it because there's so much cross ownership that in some cases some of these things come together, or are they like are these proactively marketed, or are these more grassroots sort of shots that
1: happen? everybody tries to make they they try make to make the next happen. thing <laughs> yeah they try to make something happen and, it's and like can. trending
0: it's, on twitter right like it's,
1: yeah it's it's like the question of it's like when you're in in the agency world and someone says well give me a viral video it's like i can't do that um you can you can make a product you think is good and you hope people like it whether that's a piece of video content or a a liquor. We never imagined that our product would get popular as a shop. We really thought it'd be sort of an after dinner serve. Um, And we're still grappling to this day with how did that happen? Like, why is that? Um, I, you know, in the transition to Gallo, I've had a lot of conversations with them and they, they've, they've been wonderful trying to dig into why do people consume the brand and how do they feel about it? And the assumption everybody makes at first is, Because it's another cream liqueur, they think it's the consumption is like Bailey's and it's, it's not. It's, it's a, it's a much different approach that people have. There's a lot more community. It's not someone alone and drinking in front of a fire with a shawl over their shoulders. Um, it's a group of people out doing something they love, um, enjoying life. It's more of a sense of community and that, you know, that is not what we thought we were creating (laughs) when we created the product. And so I think what's important is to, if you have a product that starts to sell at all, don't say, okay, this is why it's selling because this is what I made and this is, you know, this, is what, this is my assumption going into it. And so that's how we're going to keep selling this there. I think it's really important to ask yourself, is the brand being used the way I thought it was going to be used? Is it the same consumer I thought? Because you might be really surprised. You know, one example, and this was before we even you know, took more control of our data. The early times when we would do um, consumer research, consumption was pretty much 50-50. And everybody assumed it was it was pretty heavily female skewed. Our distributors, our retail partners, even we did. Just because um,
0: it was like sweet or they just assumed <laughs> women would go for that we, more?
1: Yeah, there, there was a little, um, well, I'll call it gender norming. Like we just thought it was a little bit more of a female-focused product. It's It wasn't even 14%, I'll call it 1375 Um, but I think the other thing is social media. You had a lot of women posting about the product. Um, and if you only look at what's happening in social media, you're only hearing sort of the loudest voices. And there's a lot, there was a lot of consumption from men And we we've over eight years of doing survey testing. It's always been 54, 46 female to male. I've never even seen 60% in any of the Twenty rounds of, of testing we did, or or um, of tracking studies we did, and so that's I think when you're when you're trying to create something that's going to be popular, it's really important to do some research, even if it's just whether it's social media or just out in in public, looking at how people are consuming. Um, do some research about who's consuming the product, how they're consuming it, um, because you might be surprised by the answer, especially. Especially a lot of entrepreneurs who have an idea and come into this, or even even if you're not an entrepreneur, even if you're an R and D company in a giant corporation or someone in R and D, you might really be surprised who's who's consuming your product because we certainly were. Yeah,
0: well, that that ties into I think something that that you said earlier around. Um, this having this commitment to the truth, right? Mm. And I think that sometimes um, research or data and insights can be used in more of a confirmatory way or, you know, sometimes, you know, if I'm going to be a little um, sort of bolder, like sometimes even in more of a CYA type way, right, just to say, hey, this went great, you know, um, I'm going to back my play. I went on my gut and, hey, look, it worked out. Tell me a little about like how you practically made your data practice internal, what that took, like what it meant from a time commitment standpoint, and just, you know, maybe even from a culture transformation standpoint.
1: Absolutely. So we, yeah, we were talking about this yesterday. I was in a unique position. It was a family company. So I have a lot of vested interest in its success. And I also have a lot of job security. So Right. And, and your
0: dad's I, not going to be like, wow, great. You did a social media campaign. I'm so happy. It's like, it comes down to sales, right? So. Yeah. We're always
1: looking at the sales. Uh, and so I, I realized I had, a, I had maybe more incentive and I also had the protection to really say, okay, let's not try and pass everything off as a success. Let's see what worked and what didn't. Um, and the, the way we really did that is when we we switched our our tracking study to UGov, and they they provided all our data in, in a in the, it's the Crunch platform. It's like a I think it's a Power BI platform. And so they, we were able to in any meeting I could pull up, you know, the Hispanic consumer in California. What is the awareness over the last nine quarters? Um, I I could cut the data any which way. We asked three thousand people every three months, basic awareness stuff. And and as you get more and more of that data, you you really have the power to answer a lot of questions. And that was. That wasn't actually all that expensive. It was the same cost on that research. We also at the time paid to get Nielsen, which we hadn't before. We invested a lot more money in, in all of our all the data that was available to us. Um, and then also at the same time as part of this journey, we became corporate sponsors of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, the, you know, the, the, or the, the research institute that's put out the How Brands Grow books, which are very um, influential. And their corporate sponsorship program, Gives you access to all of their research. It's easily searchable, um, but also to their people. So we could email and ask them questions. Like I said, we're redoing our tracking study. Is this question formatting going to give me the right answer? And some oh, of them, they say, to yeah. are my
0: leading people, yeah.
1: Yeah. And they, so they really helped us say, this is how you get the most usable data. So we made all these investments in, in, in consulting, in the actual data, and new platforms. But then you have to invest the time. Uh, To really understand them. I don't think we would have gotten as much out of it. And frankly, the first year or so that we had all these tools, we didn't get as much out of them as we did later on because we were still learning how to use them and what the, like physically, how to get the data, how to use it like that. But also you have to kind of wrap your head around this, this approach that you can answer any of these questions. If you're in a meeting and someone says, well, I wonder if Perhaps people don't want to put rum chata in coffee, right? Well, I can go to youGov. I can ask that question to a thousand people overnight, and I can have an answer tomorrow. And once you get in the mindset of we can get an answer to any of these questions, you you that sort of builds upon itself, and you have more you have more confidence in your decisions and the programming that you're that you're laying out there. And you also, I think, in the end, you can you can own up if something didn't work. You know, we invested a lot of money trying to push rum chata and coffee as a a new consumption after the shot was falling off. And we didn't really move consumer behavior all that much. It was 10% in 2017 and it's 10% now. Um, And being able to admit that that's not working, you know, we were able to pare down some of our product offerings. We were able to focus on other messaging that works. But if you, you know, if I staked my whole you know, year on, Oh, we're going to get, we're at double coffee consumption with Ramchata And then I have to go answer for why that didn't work. I think the the organization needs to put people, and this is another thing we discussed, top down from a leadership perspective, I wouldn't say reward people when they fail, <laughs> but if they're willing to admit that something didn't work and they want to change it, if you give, if you empower those sorts of people and that sort of decision-making, um, you're going to get a lot better results in the long run because people won't be afraid to fail. And so when it comes back to the data, I, I have a 40-question questionnaire over nine quarters that we ask 3,000 people per, per time, right? So I have, I don't know, 100,000 data points, maybe more. I could find the one that's going to say my program worked if I really (laughs) wanted to, in all of that. But is that your
0: only criteria, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: If that's if I had to go defend this, whether it's for my bonus or for my job or just to keep my, you know, my my budget for the next year, and so I think there's there's a number of things we learned along the journey in terms of making your organization data focused. One is it's important for everybody who's involved in the marketing side. To have access to the data and to understand it, and so we didn't have one analyst who would tell us what to do. I had a team of people. It was four of us. We would review all every Nielsen drop. We would look through it state by state, size by size. I'd ask my team, "What do you see?" Um, we would look at the, the tracking studies when they came in. If we were designing a new tracking study, I would ask my team, "What are you wondering about? Is there a question you want to add to the to the to the to the, um, to the study?" Because I'm one person and I have my own opinions and I've also been on the brand for seven years. Our employee that we had hired last summer might have a very different opinion on things and might see things differently. I think that it's, it's really easy to say, okay, we have an analyst over here or we have someone who's pretty data focused. They get this stuff. Let's let them analyze Let's it. and we'll, run
0: with it. Come back to us with the answers, right? Yeah.
1: Come back to us with the answers, but they might not even ask the questions that you would ask. Uh, and that, that took a while for us to learn uh in terms of making the whole team more more data focused and data centric
0: yeah it's uh there's a certain messiness to it you sort of have to get in the muck and you can't sort of sit back on a on a pedestal and just kind of wait for for things to to surface um but it's, you know, I think what you did there, though, is very unique because I think it is it is one thing to say, hey, we want to be a data-driven organization. It's another thing to really move that through um you know you talked about like not and I feel like sometimes the commentary on this goes too far where it's like reward failure celebrate failure you're like <laughs> yeah. that is not that great like it's not something you should strive for but it's right. okay like as long as there can be psychological safety around not being perfect and not always being right as long as you're learning like how do you bring that to a culture like you know, because you don't want to go off on the other spectrum, which is like, just fail. That would be fantastic. I think some of the books that cover this, it's almost like I should go out and try to fail and that (laughs) will be a success in itself, you know. (laughs) But how do you... How do you, practically speaking, bring that into a culture? And you talk about, you know, you maybe have that psychological safety because you feel like you have this job security. But, you know, did your team feel more at risk because you were actually also an owner or less so because they felt like they had air cover? Like, how did you personally bring that to your team and and cross-functionally?
1: I hope they felt like they had more cover. Uh, You know, I... I tried to emulate this piece of advice. I I don't know how well of a job I did, but I I heard once that like the basis of a good leader is to take the blame if things go wrong and share the credit if things go right. And that really provides people a environment to take manageable risks, right? I wasn't, (laughs) I I wouldn't, if something kept going wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong, you have to address it. But I I think to give an example in our own journey, we came out with the new product in 2017, 2018. It was called, We called it Frappachata. It was an iced coffee product, Uh, rum chata mixed with iced coffee, ready to drink. It it, it was great. The liquid was great. And we advertised heavily and we tested awareness for a couple of years. And two years into the life cycle of the product, we had 3% national awareness on Frappachata, and we had 30% national awareness on rum chata. Uh, so one out of 10 rum chata drinkers knew the product existed. And this is when I say advertised heavily. We spent, let's call it two and a half, three million a half, $3 million. Like it was a big investment for us. And it hit me like a ton of bricks at one point that obviously the chata that we know is rum chata is not being connected to frappa chata. And we were, we were just too close to it. And we thought people would connect those 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 names, and they didn't. and and so we repackaged the product, we changed it to rumchata Cold Brew. Um, and then we also were able to use that learning as we launched a couple other new products last year to say, okay, we have to have the Rumchada name in its gold logo right across the front of the package. It does not it's not well enough to to loosely tie it to the brand. It has to be the exact same logo, same font, same everything. And this was also heavily influenced by a lot of the distinctive asset work that Ehrenberg Bass has done and that they push of like really the the, I mean the the log line is figure out what your customers recognize and make sure that's across every package. And I think with a lot of the, the Ehrenberg, you know, how brands grow, once you hear them, you're like, oh, of course, do that. And then you look at the brands out there that aren't doing that, myself included, and you're like, oh wow, this is we need to, we need to do this. So that was one thing where yeah we we failed that product did not launch well it did not do a great job and we came back a couple of years later we learned from it and then last year you know we were plus plus 34 percent cash value according to nielsen um, the the and the, the whole industry the whole world was thrown out of whack last year right our category was about plus 20 so we we really outgrew the category and it was because we had, we had failed, yeah, but we also looked at that failure, tried to learn as much as we could, um, strengthened whatever those learnings were or confirmed them uh, in the data, and then we came back and we improved upon that. And that's, you know, if you're, I think about agency life where if you have one bad campaign or you have a bad year, you might lose the account. That is just not conducive to long term good work because people are constantly, the incentives there are to, really try and make not learn it, you're not incentivizing people to learn and grow and do a better job over the long run you're incentivizing them to you know put lipstick on a pig and try to make a failure look like a success and that's um if you're doing that you can never really have a a realistic discussion about what's working and what's not and how do we improve
0: yeah. And I think I wonder if it's that sometimes, you know, when you go into campaign measurement, something that I know worries me in our business, where you go, gosh, everything's already been done, right? All mm-hmm. the money has been spent, all the presentations have been given, everyone's so excited. And then they huddle together and go, how did it go? You're like, oh, man, you know, it's, it's, The stakes are so high and, you know, people have put on their Sunday best to sort of (laughs) see the results and you're like, I guess, you know, there's a different sort of approach than if you're sort of approaching it going, hey, this is an opportunity to make the next campaign better and to really sort of get takeaways. I think there's one which is like confirmatory and another which is exploratory, um, but it is, I mean, it's it's really hard. And I think agencies, you know, perhaps even more than, than pre-COVID, I think are, are put in that spot where, you know, it's very hard to say, hey, you know, this didn't work, but here's what we learned. It's sort of everyone wants the person who has the magical, you know, the magical answer for everything where every campaign always works. And that's just not reality.
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny. As you were saying that, I thought of the scientific method, you know, like from 400 years ago. And I, when I was growing up, I always, when we learned this in school, I think why bother making a hypothesis to start? Why don't you just see what happens with the experiment and you'll, yeah, you'll just figure it out from the experiment. But I think in the sense of like looking back on a campaign, it, it would probably be pretty helpful up front to say, this is what we think is going to happen. So then later on, you can't just dig through this mound of data or this mound of results for whichever one might support your, your claim, um, you, you can really hold yourself to, this is what we intended to do and this is what we thought would happen. Did it happen? And that, I think that grounds your analysis more in reality because if you, you'd say I put together a whole campaign and I'm trying to sell, let's just call it rum chata, to people over 60. If, if in the end, it turns out that I look at all this data and wow, engagement in the campaign was up massively for people 21 to 40. Okay, great. That's great. I can put that into a deck somewhere, but I didn't accomplish my goal. How am I ever going to recreate that if I wasn't even trying to do that from the get-go? And I think there is a there is a sense when you start looking backwards at a, at a campaign, especially if the sales numbers didn't go the way you wanted to, or you didn't get the viewership numbers or whatever the engagement to, to there's a, there's a, there's a temptation to say, okay, we have 10,000 metrics here. Let's find the 10 best for us. And between just like,
0: between 6 and 7.00 PM. We yeah. were the winners.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I just long-term if, if it's like throwing darts blind, right. You might hit a bullseye once, but you're not going to really be able to recreate that um, when you try and come back and and do the next campaign.
0: I, uh, I, I had this thought last year and I was thinking around, you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a believer, right? Like I believe data and insights are incredibly important. Of course mm-hmm. I do. I founded a company around it. Um, but, you know, I had this theme around like essential services and, you know, can you go through your life and be, you know, in many respects a great marketer or a great content creator um, or a wonderful creative without ever looking at data? probably like could you be better maybe right how do you how do you think about that um, is that not the right lens? Like, what, what is it about the data and insights that you've used that potentially are arguably more of an essential services and a must-have than sort of a luxury? And I think maybe that maybe my question ties into, you know, if you're only using data to back your play and prove that something that you already were going to do anyway was the right thing, then it's probably not essential, right? Because you can just talk it up, you can create great slides, you can pull some verbatims and everyone's happy. But what what in that process potentially makes data an essential
1: service? That's an interesting question. I mean, coming from an organization that we didn't have the Nielsen consumer sales data or any consumer sales data for the first five years I was working there. And and we had other ways to measure the, the, the success of the business. We had our own shipments, we had depletions, but Depletions for us is in, is as kind of halfway between consumer sales and shipments, um, but we it, it was eye opening once we had that data. What you could—that's the end goal, I guess—is what I'm trying to get at, right? Like I can dress up awareness numbers and I can say our, you know, our in purchase intent is up and the consumption metrics and we're reaching all the people, but if you're not selling more product in the end you're going to have to close the doors, right? What's, what's the point? Um, and so, and even, I know some businesses, organizations are probably, you know, probably think, well, sales isn't the point. You know, we're, we're a, we're a nonprofit. We're trying to help people, but you have to sell whatever you're doing. You have yeah, to sell it's that. Or it's, yeah. Yeah. It, there, there's something there that you have to bring in to keep the lights on. And even if you're trying to sell, you know, people on a, on a public health measure, for example, right? Like, you, you have to be able to sell that and get people to come in. I think about all of the talk now about how to get people to come in and be vaccinated, right? Like that's, that's, that is a sales challenge. I hope they're looking at it like a sales challenge as much as like a public health challenge. And so you have to know who's not coming in and getting vaccinated yep. so you can reach Why? those people, yep. the media they're using, Right. And so if you don't have access to your sales metric, if you're, if you're looking at every campaign based on engagement, or awareness numbers, or or any other number of things, you're not actually. You're not, it's like you're playing the, the the game, but you're not looking at the scoreboard in the end, right? I think that's that's something that's integral for people to understand. And then with any campaign, there there are smaller goals, right? I can't sell Wicker directly over the internet, so it doesn't make sense for me to say, okay, I put this video up online. Um, what has happened to my? I can't measure my direct sales generated from that because it's not possible in my industry. So I have to have another metric um, to say, was this, was it reach that I was looking for? Is it the time, you know, someone watched the video? Is it the, the amount of engagement, the way it was shared, the the demographics of people who saw it, you know, I think any of those things, you have your broader sales goals for your whole organization. You're, um, and then for a smaller campaign, you have to have a specific goal in mind and that's what's really integral. I, I, we, early on at Rumchata, back before they changed a lot of the sort of Facebook algorithms, we could post content to Facebook and get a 100,000 shares on it and millions of people seeing it organically. Um, and now you can't get any of that stuff. Um, but once we checked under the hood of that, we, the top line data looked great. We didn't really bother to think about it much beyond that because these big numbers were flashing in our face. And then you could go see the frequency and some people were seeing it 10, 12 times. And so that million people who saw it is actually maybe 100,000. It doesn't right. look as successful now. But it, I think if for every business, the, the data that's going to be essential for you is going to be slightly different. But there's, there's, the, there's the big pie-in-the-sky sales number that you always have to have an eye on. And then beyond that, for your specific campaigns, you should have an actual target you're looking for. And that's what is really going to be integral to, to you in that instance.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. So when you, um, so you're at a really, you know, fun inflection point, what's Mm. exciting for you right now as you stare out into the future?
1: I think, I mean, it's been a really strange year for everyone, right? And I, I have a lot of sympathy. We were in an industry that benefited from a lot of these lockdowns. People were at home more, they were purchasing more spirits. I have a ton of sympathy for our partners in bars and restaurants. A lot of people lost their jobs, lost their businesses. Um, and I hope all those people get back to work and and those businesses can, can really thrive again. But going forward, I mean, after you see economic disruptions like this, you oftentimes see a lot of innovation, entrepreneurship. And I think that you're going to see in the next five to 10 years, a ton of new businesses and new ideas that came out of people who you know, they, they, maybe they didn't have the stability. They thought they had to at that one job and it it gave them that push to go try and start their own business. So I'm, I'm excited to see how people respond in the next five to 10 years. uh, The new businesses that crop up personally, having come from, uh, you know, a medium sized family business um, that we just went through this journey. I've spent the last four years trying to say, how do we build out an operation so we can, make as sound decisions as these big multinational corporations were competing against and their gigantic advertising agencies, how do I get the data and the insights to be able to compete with them um, with the resources and frankly, the the financial uh, wherewithal of a small company. And that's what I've done for the last four or five years. And so on a a personal level, I'm excited to see a lot of these young companies grow, become mid-sized companies. And then I would love to give you all advice on how to make that leap from, okay, we had a great product and we've grown this business more than we ever thought we would. Now we need to really take a look at our consumer at our, at our market at, at the, you know, the demographic trends happening and, and make better decisions going forward. Cause we're not sort of on that rocket ship now. Now, now it's about grinding out steady growth and reaching new people. And so, I'm excited for that in the, in the macro sense for the whole world to see the type of things that come out in the next five to 10 years. Um, and I hope I get a chance to advise some of those people, uh, with some of the skills I've developed recently.
0: And if you, I mean, when you do, I'm, I was going to say if you do, when you do, um, what would be the top piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs, you know, newly minted entrepreneurs that might be going out, they might have found a little bit of a niche and they're, you know, figuring it out much the same way you you did, you know, four
1: or five years ago? I would say, this is so funny because I'm going to just undo everything I just said. Early on, don't, don't rely on research. If you have an idea, if you have a business you think can succeed, you're gonna have to pour so much heart and passion into that and time. Uh, you you have to believe in it fully. Uh, and if we had researched in 2009, what people want out of a cream liqueur, they would have told us they want Irish whiskey and chocolate and they would have made Bailey's because that's all they knew. Um, you know, Steve Jobs, Not, I mean, this is, I can't believe I'm comparing Ramchata to Steve Jobs, but if, you, if he had asked a bunch of people in, I don't know, 1999, how they want to listen to music, they would have described a Walkman or a Discman. They would not have described the iPod. They, they couldn't have, right? And so my advice to any entrepreneur is if you have an idea that you love, put your head down, create the best version of that product that you can and try and get it out there to as many people to start. And if people like it and they start to pick it up and and it's successful, then it's time to worry about who's consuming this, why, where, but, but before then, I don't think any of that, all of the data that I just talked about so goingly for the last 40 minutes, I don't think it's helpful uh, until you really have the product out there and you've seen if people are going to take to it because it's really hard for people to imagine what they want. Um, I I think it, 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 yeah, that would be my advice to to anyone starting a new business is, is you got to, you have to believe in your own idea because so many businesses don't work out that if you don't believe in it, you're just not going to be able to get through all the challenges it's going to take to get it to market.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh I think a fun way that data was once described to me is like thinking of it almost as like a sword or a shield, right? And you can use mm-hmm. it to create reasons why something won't work or to worry more or to say, hey, I need more time to think about this and test it. And yeah, sometimes early on you just sort of have to go, right?
1: Well, the data is tremendous at telling you the truth about what is happening, right? but it's really hard to use the data to project what's going to happen or what people want. And I think you can look at the the liquor industry, everybody, one person comes out with a flavor that works of a product and you will see that in every other product there is out there. It's just, it's a copycat industry. That's what happens. Um, But you can't look at the flavors that are succeeding right now and then project ahead to say, Oh, all of a sudden people are going to want to jump to a cinnamon whiskey or a peach whiskey, you know, or, you know, a, a pink lemonade vodka is really going to blow up. Like these, these are all products that have become, you know, hundred million dollar products in the last five to 10 years. And no amount of research before they were out there would have told you that's what consumers want. And so, yeah, I think the the sword and the shield analysis is, is. That's interesting. And I certainly, I think we talked about that in terms of whether you're using the data to defend what you're doing or um, really kind of actively try and figure out. I I think that's an interesting parallel there. I I almost think of it like, I don't know, like a history book or I I don't know. I was gonna say a time machine, but that's not really right. But like forward looking looking or backwards looking, I, I think the the data really should oftentimes we use to to ask what is actually happening and how can we adjust as opposed to um what do we think is going to happen in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, I know I love that. Um last question for you. If you could go back in time when you first, like either to the start of your career or if you want from when you first came on board at Rum Charter, what is the one thing that you wish you would have known right then?
1: The one thing there's so many. Um <laughs> um i think you know one thing in my the bridge between my time at at Saatchi and Saatchi and Ramchada. you know i i really thought about the, this the creatives are gonna be so mad at me for saying this but i i really used to think that a great idea can really carry a, a brand and carry awareness and you know a clever piece of content or something like that and if you don't have an understanding of how you're going to get that any sort of message in communications, if you don't have an understanding of who you're going to deliver it to and how, it doesn't matter how good the message is. I think of, you know, if you wrote the greatest rock and roll song ever before there was a radio, you're not really going to get that song out to a lot of people. You're not going to become the Beatles. Um, It's, and it's one thing I think early on and, and, and particularly now in, in, when we see small brands doing really great things online um, people think oh all I need is one great piece of content or I need um, you know I I feel like brands don't do the same more but oftentimes I used to ask for that viral video you know five six years ago and that's
0: it's still a thing
1: it's still (laughs) happening okay (laughs) that's not um, instead of focusing on what the content is going to be uh, of the message, um, and I guess if you looked at a larger business perspective, it, it, what the specific product is, you have to know what the route to market is going to be, or else you're you're just you're you're not you haven't fully thought out the whole business. You've only thought out a little portion of it. Um, and then the other thing, the other specific advice I would give to myself, to if I could go back eight years, would be really invest your time in understanding the data around who your consumer is why they're consuming and and make that a focal point for your own decision-making because that, and again, this is, I jumped at Ramchada when the, the brand was doing a quarter million cases. So we already knew the product was working. We had gotten through that first phase of sort of uh, blind faith, right? Um, once you take the blinders off, if I think we could have, we could have made some of these adjustments earlier on, but it's a journey and you learn uh, a lot along the way. And as long as you are learning from some of those things that don't go as well as maybe you like, um, I think in the long run, you'll, you'll, you'll add more skills and you'll add a better perspective. And, and that's one way to, to, to succeed in, in business. So I, I, I I try to have a little, uh, um, compassion for myself eight years ago, uh, who was trying to learn a lot of different parts of the business and focused originally on the ones that he knew the best. Um, but, um, yeah, that was a little rambling, but, <laughs> but I'm getting nostalgic, I suppose, now towards the end of my time at Rimchada. So
0: oh, that's incredible. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's it's so great to, to have you on and I'm I'm very excited for all the entrepreneurs that you will be supporting um in in the coming weeks, months, and years as you sort of you know bring bring what you've learned out into the world.
1: Well, thanks so much. I'm I'm looking forward to it. It should be you know, a fun, fun few years. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This is this was a great conversation. Terrific, thanks.